Good morning, everyone. Good morning, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. We're delighted today to have one of our own, Brad Eric, giving our um, discourse on heritable cancer risk. Um, there are no conflicts. I think he's even put that there to disclose for this morning. Um, Brad was born in San Francisco. He was a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Wesleyan University. He got his PhD at Rockefeller University in New York and his MD at Cornell. He studied glutathione and he became an expert in glutathione, which continued not only in his initial work in parasitology, but in cancer. He did his internship and residency at UC San Diego and he uh, did his fellowship in medical oncology at UCSF. He did another bit of training uh, at Genentech and he came to Dartmouth in 1990. He has ascended through the ranks. He's an associate professor of medicine. He's the section chief in hematology and oncology. He directs the familial cancer program in the Norris Cotton Cancer Center. Brad um, is a wonderful teacher. He uh, is involved at every level at arts and sciences at Dartmouth College in our UME, CME, GME, and community medical education programs. He has been funded in his research, mostly focused initially in breast cancer, and uh, has held a number of grants uh, that supported the work that he's done in that. I'm not sure what that's about. It could be something electronic from one of our constituents here. Um, Hopefully it'll stop in a moment, Brad. Uh, in addition to that, he's widely published, initially in the areas of glutathione uh, as it related to uh, anti-microbials, uh, but then, of course, uh, well-published in the area of breast cancer work. He is what we would call a triple threat, and we are delighted that Brad is here as a leader in our, in our medical center, as specifically a leader in the Norris Cotton Cancer Center. And Brad, we're very much looking forward to what you have to tell us today about hereditable cancer risk. So does this one work? Oh, good. It's good, good to be at this end of the room uh, for, for the moment. Um, so yes, I'm going to be talking about hereditable cancer risk. and. Um, and I hope all, many of you or most of you have the uh, little audience response systems. Uh, we're going to be going A, B, C, D, um, and, uh, and the first couple slides will be a little test of, of your abilities. Um, and, and so first I want you to sort of look at this image a bit, to so sort of empty your minds, uh, take a look at it, and then uh, on your thing, tell me what you think this might be. It could be a histologic section. It uh, could be a, uh, a congressional district in Texas, uh, or a Rorschach that's designed to elicit a certain degree of anxiety in men, or Scandinavia. Okay, so you just go ahead and it looks like it says, is any polling open? Okay. And uh, let's see here. Oh, very good, very good. Oh, 3%. Who was that? <laughs> well, you can you can report to me later. It's, it's understandable, but uh, it, indeed it's Scandinavia. And I bring up Scandinavia because uh, in thinking about heritable cancer risk, um, 
Scandinavia has been doing a study for a long time now, this, this collection of uh, countries uh, on twins called the Nord Nordic Twin Cancer Registry. Very impressive. Initially, uh, a, a major publication in the New England Journal in 2000, uh, where they've been tracking uh, and have excellent data on uh, cancer incidence in twins. And as you recall, twins come in two flavors, monozygotic and dizygotic. And the value there is that, and presumably they grow up together, that these two individuals, these two sets of pairs differ in the sense that monozygotics share 100% of the DNA and dizygotics 50% of the DNA. Um, and uh, they've been following over a quarter million people for a meeting of 40 years. So that's over 10 million person years of, of, of follow-up. Uh, with a lot of cancer diagnoses. So the first thing they report is the concordance risk, which would be uh, uh, if you if you had to say have a twin uh, who's a dizygotic twin who had prostate cancer, then your risk is about 16%. If your twin had was a monozygotic, 32%. And through complex mathematics that I don't understand, using these two numbers, they come up with an estimate of what proportion of cancer is heritable and what proportion is environmental. Now, reflect for a moment on, the, on this monozygotic number, because if you talk, I think, to a lot of monozygotic twins, they'd be surprised that it's not 100%. They think, you know, uh, by golly, I'm so linked to my twin. What happens to uh, him happens to me. Um, but it's not the case, and it also helps you to sort of keep in mind that genetics and your DNA is not everything. There's a lot of cancer incidence and development that's, that's a matter of random choice, random events, as well as random choice, smoking and so forth. Um, but based on these numbers, they came up with their estimates of the proportions that, of cancers that are um, heritable. Top on the list, and I point that out because I'm not gonna talk about any prostate cancer susceptibility genes, because they've been really hard to find. But top on that list is prostate cancer. In a middle category would be testicular, breast, melanoma, and ovarian. Uh, and then um, you can see the other sort of collection there. Uh, so these are the estimates of total heritability for a cancer. And when we talk about heritability, obviously we're talking about the genome. And it's important to sort of divide it into two categories and to always consider two important elements. One of them is how common is the, it in the, freak, in the population and what's the penetrance? If you recall, penetrance in simple terms means what's the likelihood that an organism with a certain genotype will show the phenotype? And here the phenotype is cancer. So the genes that you're all familiar with, like BRCA1 for breast cancer, APC for familial adenomatous polyposis, are genes that are very low in the population frequency but have a very high penetrance, a cancer risk that's, that may be 60 to 90 or so percent. Then there's gonna be a bunch of, of genes that are uh, only now more being appreciated that are in the moderate risk category, maybe a, instead of a 20-fold risk, maybe a five-fold or eight-fold increased risk, three-fold, that are of moderate frequency in the population. And then uh, we're aware of through uh, GWAS studies that look at SNPs throughout the genome of a number of common alleles in the population, but that have a very small risk or a very low penetrance. And uh, we're gonna talk about first about some of, one of a couple of the high penetrance, low frequency genes that we deal with all the time in the familial cancer program. 
but then talk about the others and how they might interact and interplay with each other. So I refer you to, um, by the way, I want to say, I want you to point out that, uh, that um, uh, this is a very timely uh, talk, mind you. I didn't plan it this way, but in just this month and this year, there have been many uh, top uh, publications on this topic. So in January of 2004, an excellent review in Nature on cancer predisposition genes, where they map out on the chromosomes 114 of them. Uh, pointing out that the vast majority are autosomal dominant in their inheritance pattern, 28 autosomal recessive, and only four on the X chromosome, one on the Y. <coughs> Most of these are loss of function mutations, okay? Um, and you can think back to the Knudsen two-hit hypothesis, but one of the consequences of a loss of function mutation is that the mutation can be pretty much anywhere on the entire coding sequence. You can screw something up in innumerable ways by introducing a frame shift or what have you, uh, the, the fewer that are gain of function, we are missense mutations in very specific uh, amino acid sites. This part, article also points out that quite a number of them have non-cancer manifestations uh, to them. For instance, the trichloromoma, and I want to point out that's what these little tiny little white bot Dots are one trichloromoma doesn't do it. So we're talking about people who've got lots of them, and this would be in the uh, P10 Calvin syndrome uh, uh, predisposition, or you, many of you I hope uh, would recognize this as a potentially a Putz-Jaeger patient with um, macules all over their lips, and they can have them uh, inside their mucosa as well. So let's talk a little bit about BRCA1, and we have a couple cases to demonstrate some of the issues involved. Um, so BRCA1 was cloned by genomic uh, positional cloning uh, as the result of a consortium that around the, around the uh, world. And they were able to find BRCA1 and by identifying the gene and knowing who in the family had it and who in the family got cancer and who didn't, they were able to come up with their penetrance estimate, again, which is the risk that a woman uh, who's a carrier would sit more like on this red line in terms of a cancer risk, perhaps approaching 50% by the age of 50. Not 100%, okay? So it's not a for sure thing, but certainly much higher risk than the general population. Okay, so let's do a couple cases. Um, perhaps I should uh, uh, remind many of you that in a pedigree diagram like this, each row is a generation. Boys are squirrels, girls are circles. Okay, and when a boy and a girl, or, or sorry, a man and a woman are linked <laughs> like this, they may be married, not necessarily so, but they've had a child, an offspring. They've had four offspring, these two. And this is the arrow tells you who it is that's come to you for counseling. And this woman is quite concerned about her risk for breast cancer, understandably so, given that her mother, grandmother, aunt, sister, and, and a cousin have all, all had it. Now, when there's a line slashed through, that means it's a deceased individual. You can't talk to, and today, these days, you can't do genetic testing on, on dead people, uh, at least not without their consent. So she's coming saying, hey, I'm really, I'm really concerned. I'm the, I want to have that gene test. Well, one of the things that, one of the principles that we always try to apply that frankly, sometimes patients have a really hard time with, and even referring physicians have a hard time with, is that in dealing with this case, and we think of it as a whole family that we're concerned about, it's always important to test the person who's most likely to be a carrier, which is not her, but rather her sister. 
So even though the sister may live in, a, in another state uh, far away, our first discussion, or in the first session, we're talking about, well, can we get your sister uh, tested? Well, she says, oh, yeah, 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 my sister got tested, and it was negative. Okay, she had that test, BRCA test, and she was negative. So now what do you do? Okay, so here's your second opportunity to vote. You can um, tell her that, well, okay, heritable branch cancer risk has been ruled out, uh, and therefore your risk is close to that of the general population. Goodbye. Or you can ask her to work with her sister to get a copy of that genetic test result so you can review it. Or you can tell her that because of the family history, even though there's a negative BRCA1 and 2 genetic test result in her sister, her risk for breast cancer is elevated compared to the general population. Or D, you can do that and further go on and talk to her about measures like tamoxifen, which, which in high-risk women would reduce their risk. So the responses are coming in. <clears throat> People seem very convinced about your thoughts. And the answer was B, primarily. Very good. Um, why? You don't trust the, huh? Well, number one, people, people get confused. You know, in, in breast cancer, we, we test for HER2 amplification, and people think, oh, that was a genetic test, which in a way it was, but that's looking at the somatic tissue. But the other issue is this. So here is her sister's test result. And um, coming from Myriad, which is the company that did most of them up until they lost the patent. And boy, right at the top, it looks pretty darn comprehensive, doesn't it? Called comprehensive. And it's all negative. Here, oops, I gotta go back. What did I do? This way. Um, and it's all negative. So now what do you do? Well, uh, the fact of the matter is that this is a very rapidly moving field. And uh, let me explain to you how genetic testing of this sort is done. The, the, the BRCA1 genomic locus is very, very big. They do not sequence the entire genomic locus, rather they uh, PCR amplify the, the exons, okay? So remember, a gene is broken up into exons that are scattered throughout the genome. PCR is where you would get these primers. Here's a green one, a red one. Indicate, I'm just color coding them for you. And then make multiple copies of that segment, okay? So they would take her DNA. And I'm also showing you each line here is the different chromosome, okay? I'm not, I'm not trying to show you the, dupli the, the duplex. So she's got two chromosomes in this case. And they see, amplify up the little pieces and sequence them, and no problem. But in this case, let's say the person has a mutation here. People have are heterozygous. If they're a carrier, they're generally, remember, because I said autosomal dominant. I'm not talking about recessive uh, inheritance. But anyway, she's just a, to be a carrier. One copy is normal, the other is not. They amplify up the pieces. And as they're sequencing at that position, they're going to see both the normal and this abnormal sequence. And they're going to go, aha, she's a carrier for, and they'll, they'll report out what it is. Good. Perfect. But what if the mutation is one like this, where instead of a mutation of an insertion or deletion of a few nucleotides, an entire exon or multiple exons are just completely gone through an, an, an interstitial deletion? Well, then the, these PCR, these red primers have nothing to sit down on in this chromosome, and all you're left with are normal products. And unless they have a system for actually quantifying the amount of PCR products, they're likely to miss this, and that would have been a false negative. 
And that alerted them, uh, and uh, actually our, when some of our patients were part of the research study that, that was inviting patients who had a strong family history and tested negative, we were referring them to Seattle. And they came to realize that, that there are many areas where there can be these sort of deletions. This just sort of shows section, sections that are deleted. This is the genomic locus of BRCA1 and of BRCA2. And so they developed a test called BART for a rearrangement test. And uh, in the general Caucasian population, about 10% of all carriers would only be found by BART. Uh, interestingly, in Latin America and the Caribbean descent, about 20% uh, would, would have been a were completely missed by the comprehensive <laughs> analysis. And most of them were one specific deletion. And that just underscores the notion of a founder effect in, in certain populations where the prevalence of something may be higher, but also it's not, it's one specific. <coughs> okay. So it turned out, back to our case, this is the same case now, I'm gonna put this dimpling here to show that she is now, we now know that she is a mutation carrier. Now we can proceed back to our initial patient and offer her testing that will give her a definitive answer. And she's thrilled because her result was negative. Because remember, from Mendelian genetics, knowing that she's a carrier and that they are first-degree relatives, she had a 50% of being risk of being a carrier, and she had a 50% chance of not being a carrier, which is great news. Her risk for breast cancer is not elevated, significantly by any means, really. Her risk for ovarian cancer is not elevated. That's also part of the syndrome. Nor will her children be able to inherit this. Um, if you ain't got it, you can't pass it on. But even more so, Right? So if she'd gotten tested and was negative, and we never did this, did tested her sister in, in depth, she would have come away, we would have said to her, well, you still have a significant increased risk because we've not identified the, the underlying reason for the breast cancer. And her cousin over here would have been left in the dark, but now she could get tested as well and is negative. So sometimes the genetic test resulting is quite nice in the sense that people get a definitive negative and what for them might have been a, a horror story in their family they know ends there with them and and for their offspring. So the lessons I think important to take away from this little scenario is that uh, uh, a negative result if you don't know what you're looking for can is not necessarily a conclusive negative result right if you're looking for a needle in a haystack unless you know where the needle might be you shouldn't be comforted by not finding it. Over time, genetic testing is changing. We're finding new genes or ways in which prior tests were not as comprehensive as they should have been. Um, again, why it's, it's helpful for the patient as well as the whole family to, to try to focus your efforts on the person who's most likely to be the carrier. Um, and that ultimately, if you ha do have a family where you know what you're looking for, a negative result can be much more definitive for them. Okay, here's another case. Um, here's a, a woman who's uh, got a, a grandmother who had both breast and ovarian with the breast cancer before the age of 50. And we talked BRCA1 and 2 are breast and ovarian cancer genes. Certainly, if you, if you were this person's doctor and she was alive, you would do genetic testing these days because of having both cancers. But that's her grandmother. Her mother's alive without cancer, but her mother, out of concern for the ovarian cancer, which is what ultimately killed her mother, she had a prophylactic oophorectomy, which is not unreasonable by any means. 
But now we're, dealt, we're faced with this individual here, 35, and also quite concerned. And, and almost it's like a family tradition to have an oophorectomy, it seems. So she's coming to you, uh, and she happens to bring her mother, which is nice, uh, always. Uh, always bring your mother. Um, and they want to talk about genetic testing and prophylactic uh, oophorectomy. So you have three choices this time. You can say to your 35-year-old, all right, we'll test you. Or you can turn to her mother and say, okay, you're up to bat. How about you do the test? Um, or you can just say, look, it's, we're not likely to find anything. Why don't you just go ahead and have your ovaries out? So A, B, or C. Much better chance of being right. Good, you're getting the message. Turn to the mother and say, okay, you're more likely, you're twice as likely as your daughter, uh, so why don't you get the test? And in fact, she's positive, okay? Well, why didn't she get cancer? Well, she's not gonna get ovarian cancer, most likely, because if she had her ovaries out, but why didn't she get breast cancer? Give me, give me a couple reasons. Huh? Well, the penetrance is not 100%, so by luck. But also, it turns out that when you have an oophorectomy uh, premenopausally, you reduce your risk for breast cancer. So right off the bat, the penetrance is lower, and you, and you brought it even lower by that, by that uh, maneuver. So here's a carrier who's not affected. OK, so now the daughter can get tested, OK, definitively. And here we see the daughter's negative, but this cousin over here is positive. That helps me to point out to you a couple things. One is, again, the family as a whole can benefit. And number two, these genes are not on the X chromosome. And a lot of people have been going around saying, well, uh, just focusing on their mother's risk for breast and ovarian cancer because it's a woman's thing. Um, but this, these can have paternal inheritance as well. Because without him being tested, we know that he's a carrier. Uh, her, her father, the brother of the woman we did test. OK. so. These, these pedigrees are the same ones we just saw. I'm just putting them up there. And I want to make a point about attribution. What do I mean by that? Well, in these families, we attribute the cancer to the mutations that are identified. Okay, So we would say, as I said, we said, well, the, all these cancers are because of that mutation. You're negative, therefore you're pretty darn clear. Why can I do that? Well, we're going to go back to the, that word I've been focus, focusing on, penetrance. These are high penetrant genes. And so the likelihood that they got the cancer because of the gene and not just the happenstance is, is really high. Okay? And so as you move to looking at genes that have a much lower penetrance, that, that increased risk maybe only three or fourfold, it would be a mistake to say to a carrier, that's the reason you got the cancer. And if your daughter doesn't get this, she's, she's at population risk. Because the lower on the penetrance you go, the less comfortable you should be in attributing the cancer in that family to that specific mutation. OK, is that clear? So let's go back to this uh, main slide here where I'm breaking out the different types of uh, heritable mutations. And again, to point out that these are generally inherited as Mendelian traits, that meaning you know, sort of single gene um, type of inheritance. Uh, whereas here, we're talking about multiple alleles, perhaps combining, each one having a small effect, but perhaps in, in conjunction, multiplicative, addict, additive, addictive, additive, um, having an effect, OK? 
They're also different in two ways. These are mutations in or near the protein coding regions of genes because they're actually affecting the genes, whereas here we're often talking about changes that are scattered throughout the genome. A lot of the SNPs that are in this category are, are not anywhere near any gene. Um, and believe me, a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to figure out why is this significant SNP have anything to do with this cancer? It's not near anything that that's conceivably has anything to do with that cancer. So one of them are genome-based, and the other are coding region or exome-based changes. But we're going to come back to that. But let me just talk about a couple of the ways in which people get referred or should be referred appropriately to the familial cancer program, which I'll have a final slide about giving you the phone number. So have your pens ready. Well, one way is because of their family history, obviously, the familial cancer program. So the kind of elements you look for are frequent cancers. Hopefully, you've got the syndromes in your head so you know what syndromes to look for. Hopefully, remember, it's autosomal dominant, which means you look at each side of the family separately. Okay, So if it's uh, breast cancer in the mother and ovarian cancer on the father's side, unless they're related biologically, that doesn't do much for you. Um, so you. So you take a good family history. Sometimes you might even know there's been people come to us because they uh, their relative out in Texas called them and said, you need to go see a genetic counselor, you have a mutation. Sometimes just that simple fact that they have their own diagnosis, uh, irrespective of a family history. So uh, again, in a very recent March 10th uh, publication in the Journal of Clinical Oncology is a publication on this topic where they have a whole table of what cancers would should prompt genetic counseling even in the absence of a family history, okay? So there's here's so some of these are BRCA1 and 2. If they have, you know, for instance, triple negative phenotype is one of the characteristics of BRCA1. For these uh, mismatch repair colorectal the Lynch syndrome, there's some elements of that you will see on the path report where they'll say to you that the mismatch repair genes have, have been inactivated or are not present. That would be a, a, a tip off to send someone. Some rare cancers also, like pheos, adrenal cortical carcinoma, those are all uh, have significant cancer risks. And then there's a bunch of pediatric ones that uh, I'm not as familiar with. So sometimes it could just be the cancer itself that may lead to uh, a referral. And now these days, uh, sometimes it comes from sort of a, a, a sort of a backdoor approach, in a sense, or an unintentional approach. More and more these days, for some patients, can't, patients with cancer are having their tumor DNA sequenced in, in a number in a panel of genes. Um, the purpose being to identify a target that, that is, may be available or a target that for which there's a research study uh, that they may be eligible for. And remember, this is somatic DNA testing. It may, in, in fact, you know, many tumors, as you know, have a p53 mutation, but very few people have a germline p53 mutation. So you're not really testing the germline, but you may stumble upon a mutation in a gene in the cancer that actually is there because the person was born with that mutation. And uh, that's a little tricky these days as in trying to figure out who to assume that it's somatic tumor specific and, and for whom it might be germline. OK, so back to this diagram here. Uh, again, I told you about how then these are in coding region and these are throughout the genome. Okay. 
And the, the way we do these testing is here you're looking at exomes or specific genes or now more and more gene panels of two to eight to 20 to 50 genes, uh, all of them known to be cancer predisposition genes. Whereas here, uh, you would have to do whole genome sequencing or um, in some manner if you want to have a full comprehensive in, uh, analysis. All right, so your next question. What percent of the human genome does the exome represent? What percent of the human genome is actually protein coding? What did you choose, Mark? Good. <laughs> Mark Israel got it right. Oh, good, good. Most of you did. Excellent. Um, and this is not the case across life, right? So we all learned about genetics, uh, you know, from e not from E. coli, but uh, the concepts came from a study of bacteria where the bulk of the genome is by blue uh, gets transcribed and turns into protein, and and everything was nice and easy. But yeast, not quite so. And here in humans, only a small sliver, maybe 2%, is actually protein coding. Now, we used to think that all the rest of it just sits there, inert and or maybe interacting in a DNA way. But it turns out, uh, and there's some controversy just what this true number is, but it seems that the majority of the rest of it actually is transcribed, meaning turned into RNA of some form. And most of the RNA is not of the type of structure like you're used to of messenger RNA. It could be all kinds of forms, microRNAs, circular RNAs. Um, and uh, what this is doing, these RNAs or this genome is, is some people now call it the, uh, the dark matter of the genome. It's, it's, it's probably a huge effect that we just have no clue about because we've had these little blinders on looking at this 2%. OK, so back to that. So. Um, just to underscore some of the um, general promises and, and pitfalls of gene panel testing, and eventually, as it's coming online, as the technology makes it easier to, to do, cheaper to do, whole exome gene sequencing, which again would be focused on just that 2%, but you're looking at every protein coding gene. Well, one is it certainly is more comprehensive. Um, <coughs> And you can sometimes find a, uh, an important gene that you might not have known to look for, and, or, and certainly less expensive, um, because uh, it's a lot easier to, on the current uh, instrumentation, to sequence a whole bunch of genes at once than to keep going back with another gene. Okay, now I want this one. Okay, now I want this one. Um, and uh, supposedly, the the the, um, the uh, what they're doing, a lot of these companies, is if, if I send a specimen for BRCA1 and 2, well, they're doing it on their machine that actually does you know, a whole bunch, maybe 30 genes. But they're only telling me about BRCA1 and 2. And when I go back and say, oh, well, now I want um, this other one, CDH1, for which they're going to send me a bill, they're not doing anything. They're just unmasking that data, perhaps, because they've already done it, because uh, it's easier to do it all at once. Um, <laughs> But the more you sequence people's DNA, the more you come up with results that you don't understand. And we often tell, we tell people who are having gene sequencing, okay, you can get not just two results, plus or minus, yes or no, but if there's a third category, meaning we see a change, we don't really see it that often, uh, and we don't know what it means. We think it's okay, it doesn't look like it's a big deal. Um, and it seems like it's a region on the protein that's 
been allowed to undergo variation over evolution. And so we have a lot of reasons to believe that it's not an important change and just a variant that is probably going to be benign. But often we don't know that. Uh, and it's, it takes a lot of data and analysis and many families to determine that statistically a variant is benign and just a polymorphism versus a potential contributor to risk. And I'll tell you, patients don't like that. Right? Nobody likes to be said, well, we see something and we don't really know what it means, but don't worry. They're, they're going to keep worrying. And it's, so the, the anxiety of genetic testing often comes in with these variants. And the more genes you test, the more variants you're going to get. Okay? So that's a problem. Um, and the more we talk about genes that have been recently identified, um, the less we really know about their penetrance. So I, give, I can give you some, I gave you a nice curve for BRCA1 and an actual fact and we can talk, we'll talk a little bit about how that may not be the answer for everybody. There may, some people may have slightly different penetrance. But we don't really know for a lot of these specific mutations what the true penetrance is or what the potential modifiers are. And penetrance is what matters, right? Patients want to know what's my risk for cancer, not what's my nucleotide sequence. Okay, that, that's useful for the other. But their, their goal is to learn about their cancer risk. And if you don't know the penetrance, you can't draw the connection between their sequence and their risk. And then there's the issue of the incidental findings. And that's, that I call different from a variant. An incidental finding would be where you, um, without, without intending to, you identify a mutation in a gene which is known to be associated with a certain risk of some sort, even a risk that you, that, which is not the reason they came to see you. So on this issue of these incidental findings, in 2003, the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics came out with a policy. And they said that uh, for any individual undergoing clinical exome or certainly genome sequencing for a specific indication, that they have to be told about mutations that are incidentally discovered in genes which meet certain criteria. And they have now a table of 56 such genes that have <coughs> relevance to their health, where we know something about them as being actionable in the sense of knowing that the, they have it. So most of these happen to be in this category that we're talking about today, genes that increase the risk for cancer. But there are some in there that have to do with various aspects of cardiovascular disease, arrhythmias, cardiomyopathies, hypercholesterolemia, and, and also malignant hyperthermia, right? I, I don't talk to people about malignant hyperthermia or, or long QT or anything like that. I'm talking about their cancer. But we may, if you're doing this kind of genetic testing, you may stumble upon this. And the American <clears throat> College is saying, you have to tell them. And furthermore, they can't refuse to hear it, OK? They can't opt out, OK? Well, that has led to quite a bit of a controversy. This is the same statement up here. But there have been now and, and uh, lots of discussion going on about this. Um, one of the analogies that the American College made was, well, this is just like a radiologist. I mean, if you send someone for a chest x-ray because you think they have a rib fracture and they see a lung cancer, well, that radiologist is going to tell you. They better tell you. And, and you need to act on it, right? They're not just going to put blinders on and, and only focus on the, the they look at the whole picture. And that's why genetic people should do the same. <laughs> but then others say, um, well, we don't really know enough about. I mean, you know, lung cancer, we know what to do. And there's a clear path forward. But 
for a lot of these mutations, all we know is that, uh, some association with the cancer. We don't know how to manage it. We don't know what the true risks are. Uh, so there's a lot of unknowns here. Um, and then, then there's the issue of this uh, saying that patients cannot opt out is, is perhaps a form of paternalism, of, of saying, you, I'm not going to ask you if you want to know this information. I'm going to tell you. Um, and the impractical intimate implant I'll get to in just a second, because um, Oh, so another March 2004, timely, eh? Um, this this couple of interesting papers. One of them about this was a company that offers direct-to-consumer genetic testing um, for cancer risks and so forth. They'll also tell you whether whether you have some Neanderthal in you. I guess we all do. They'll tell you how much Neanderthal you are. Um, and the FDA has been on their tail for for how they're doing and interpreting their things, but. This is a discussion specifically of that whole concept of the what I, the, the term incidentaloma. That just means you know the, cat, the, the whole uh, space of these incidental findings and whether the, the the analogy between genomics and radiology is appropriate. And then also quite recently in in the current issue of JAMA was a very interesting article where they did hold genome sequencing on uh, 12 volunteers. And interestingly, they did it on two different <coughs> instruments. Okay, so there's there's a number of platforms, um, uh, instrumentation platforms to do this, um, and so they they did this, and there were a number of concerning uh, findings. Number one, everybody has lots of things in their DNA that that aren't quite right or aren't quite the way it's supposed to be. Um, I think the estimate was a hundred uh, changes and mutations per person. <coughs> So, and each one of these took hour, well, each one took about an hour. They categorized how long it took to what's called curate, to go through it, understand it, do all the analysis to try to figure out is this important, is it not important. Uh, so even though the machine now, you can put it on there and walk away and come back a couple days later and you got your results, that's now just the tip of the work iceberg of the, of the work that's involved. Uh, now you need a lot of people who are knowledgeable to figure out what the hell do all these changes mean. And then hearkening back to my slide about the, how the initial BRCA test was missing all these deletions, when they compared the uh, sequence between the two, uh, they did very well, uh, the two platforms, and they found and were agreeing upon just about every single one of the mutations that was uh, a single nucleotide or so. But these deletions that happened throughout the genome, some of them fairly small, there was quite a bit of discordance or miscalling. So the platforms are still perhaps not very good at uh, identifying and being clearly, um, you know, sort of not missing a lot of the types of mutations that actually might be there. So what do you think? This is just going to be just sort of to promote some some thought here. I just, I'm just curious, uh, uh, do you, which, which of these maybe, uh, resonates with you, with you the most. This analogy that, yep, uh, if someone's having their DNA sequenced and and you discover a mutation that's that's critical, you know, maybe that, that you need to know before they undergo anesthesia for malignant hyperthermia, um, they should be told about it. And it's just like the radiologist uh, analogy. Or that we really don't know enough. Um, uh, or does this, does this genetic paternalism really rub you the wrong way? Uh, and so forth. Are you still thinking? Oh, you're quick thinkers. 
Aha, okay. Only one in five, so, so four out of five dentists, you're all dentists, right? Four or five dentists say that if, if you send your DNA to be sequenced and they find something that uh, could be of great concern to you, and not just you, to your children, you don't feel you need to know about that? Is that what you're saying? Interesting, because that's not what patients are saying in general. As, as, they're, as they're querying patients. You know, patients are doing this, they, you know, boy, if you know something like that, I want to know it. But okay, that's fine. Do you want to do this one again? <laughs> <laughs> so, so okay, many, many of you were uh, uh, um, uh, swayed by my cautioning about how difficult this is to do. Um, uh, and it is, and that's why I think perhaps um, genome sequencing is is probably not quite there yet. Um, and um, uh, you know, there's, there needs to be a lot of work in collecting group-wise the information. I mean, one of the concerns, um, so I'll go back to the BRCA1 and 2 uh, data, Myriad is the company that's been doing it solely for quite some time. And now the patent is gone, and other tests, other companies can do it. Well, one of the reasons why we often still go to Myriad for the test is because they have an incredibly good database about the variants. Okay, because when we come up with a variant of unknown significance, they have a whole program where they offer to test um, the parents. Often these families, it's very clear the cancer risk is on the mother's side or on the father's side, and so they'll determine for free. Which side did this mutation come from? Okay, and if it has nothing to do with cancer, as you can imagine, it's it can come from either side sort of randomly. But if it's linked to cancer, it will always track with the cancer. And they've been doing this for quite some time, and they have a great database to understand these variants. They're not sharing that, right? That's their proprietary information, um, which is working to their benefit because people are preferring to send the tests there, even though others are doing the tests, perhaps for less less money. Well, we're only going to get somewhere if people are going to uh, col collaborate and cooperate and put into one resource. And people are trying to develop these now of, of where all of the sequencings get and the variants get get um, localized and the history so that we can, in, in, in our lifetimes uh, or my lifetime, figure out um, better what to make of all these changes that you see, these 100 mutations in any individual and, and not have to spend scores of hours understanding every single person's sequence or tracking them to understand what the true risk is. And that brings me to this slide here again, because what I was telling you is that sometimes the low penetrance SNPs or genome things can interact with the uh, high risk alleles um, in a fashion like this. Let's say there's someone who has one of these high risk alleles, uh, but you also look to see about all of their um, polymorphisms in SNPs that are that may be related to that, and they and then sort that these may be in the predominance serving to attenuate the actual risk. Well, someone did a study like this, and they uh, these are not easy to do. They took they found 8,200 BRCA2 mutation mutation carriers. Okay, so not just people getting tested; they are known mutation carriers. <coughs> they know if they had cancer or not, and they did GWAS, you know, genome-wide. Um, association studies on the, these huge SNP arrays and identified a panel of SNPs that are related to risk. 
Interestingly, they came up with some SNPs that were only related to risk in BRCA2 carriers. So they can't, you can't just take the SNPs that we call breast cancer SNPs. And they came up, they were able to come up with this model that is a way of identifying the genetic modifiers of risk. So the day may come when we don't just do find their BRCA2 mutation, but we characterize the rest of the genome that is impacting on that. And there, 5%. Uh, so there may be a plus or minus 5%. Now, you may say, well, you know, I don't, it doesn't really matter whether you're here or here, but for some people it certainly might. And this is just breast cancer. It may make a bigger difference for ovarian cancer or the age of onset, right? So many women are perfectly willing to have their ovaries removed, but they kind of want to have children first and get close to menopause if they can. Um, but boy, when I'm done with them, most people, if they have a risk, would rather have them out, I found. Um, so you may, you may be able to really fine tune things uh, by uh, understanding their whole genome, but this kind of work is, is, takes a lot and, and understanding this for many of the other genes is very far away yet. So I just want to end with uh, one slide just describing a little bit about what we do um, in the familial cancer program, which is uh, basically myself and uh, a few genetic counselors. Uh, we, t we review and take uh, a good family history. Sometimes what's in EDH is not correct, or sometimes what the patient thinks is not correct. Sometimes we actually delve further and get path reports or death certificates. Then we'll give them a cancer risk assessment as well as an assessment of what options for genetic testing. Sometimes, as I said, the testing is of relatives, right? So in those cases, if the mom didn't come in with her, we would have still wanted that case number two. We, but she said, well, my mom's in New York. We said, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll arrange things for her. We'll, we'll help get her, or you know, we'll, we work with the genetic counselors all around the country to get this done properly. Um, and we connect them up with various, with relevant research, give them the counseling with the test. Um, and you know, one of the advantages of genetic testing is it allows you to uh, focus in your screening and prevention um, efforts to those at, at greatest risk. So we used to just see people here, but now we've grown, and, and so we regularly see people here, as well as St. Johnsbury, Manchester, and Nashua. So you can email me or call our number there and talk to Michelle and, and, and make a referral. Thank you. Questions? Fred, well, I'll start with the question. In addition to patients, maybe, or, or family members not necessarily want to be removed or know about their risk, what are the potential implications today of our creative and interesting insurance companies and third-party payers in terms of learning about a potential risk, not knowing exactly what the risks are, but being identified as a carrier or identified as somebody who may cost that third party payer more money eventually, and therefore there's some implication to your monthly payments or health insurance or coverage or other things like that? Uh, <clears throat> one answer to that is the word, is the acronym GINA. GINA is the federal legislation that, that protects people uh, from discrimination as regards health insurance. So it is illegal um, for health insurance to use the information to deny you insurance or to alter your payment. However, uh, GINA does not cover life insurance. So we are, we are often in the position where we have someone coming who's never had cancer, maybe a young parent, 
where there's a known mutation in the family, and, and we'll say to them, okay, you can go ahead with testing, but what you might want to do is first think about whether you've got the life insurance policy that you want, um, then get, do that. And uh, if you're a carrier, don't stop those payments, right? But if you're not a carrier and you really didn't want that much of a life insurance, then you can drop the payments, okay? <laughs> We're, we're helping them scam the system, perhaps, but um, but it is important. So life insurance and long-term care is not protected, but health insurance and employment discrimination is illegal. Does the concept of penetrance take into effect kind of the dose relationship of various mutations, or is that a whole separate consideration? As it so since these are autosomal dominant, the, the dose is one gene. There, some of these may have a haploinsufficiency phenotype, very subtle, uh, but to get cancer, other events have to happen in the target tissue. And a few of them have homozygous manifestations, so a couple of the mismatch repair genes for colon cancer. It is possible to be conceived and developed and born with two mutations and be a homozygous carrier, and uh, they have a much more dramatic phenotype. I'm just wondering if uh, Bayesian analysis applies to any of this. For example, uh, you have a, a patient who has no family history, a negative mammogram, but yet has a positive to BRCA. Does that affect your post-test probability? Um, well, ba so the. The answer to the first part is Bayesian analysis is, is key. The, the models we use to, to calculate someone's risk are Bayesian. And so we, to do them properly, you have to factor in all the unaffected as well. So you imagine a, a woman who has breast cancer has a certain risk that is less if she's got 10 sisters who don't, you know, of a, of a, of a, minimum, of a certain age. So the number of women, you know, if, well, depending on what you're looking at. So that's where Bayesian analysis comes in. So if you say there's no family history, the key question is, well, how many other people are there in the family? So Bayesian analysis is we use we use it now to calculate risk. If someone's a carrier and they and there are a bunch of other carriers that don't get cancer, that may be telling us, but we don't understand it, that there are strong genetic modifiers in that family that are attenuating the risk. Um, but we have no way to really get at that through good Bayesian analysis. So this is a penetrance question again. Um, so I assume that's heterogeneous, that some of it is interacting genes, some of it is epigenetic, some of it is environmental. So is there any way of sorting that out? Um, or do you just sort of say, you know, that's, that's the way it is, that's our state of knowledge? Um, well, certainly people are trying to at least get at the genetic component of heritable risk. Uh, people are also trying to understand the environmental in terms of, you know, for instance, with BRCA2, there's a pancreatic cancer risk. Is that further amplified by smoking and, and, and alcohol abuse? So, but it's, it's, it's still very early on in that. And a big component of it is random chance. Brad, one of the things we see pretty frequently in our multiple endocrine neoplasia kindreds is um, how the information plays into the family dynamics. And it, you see these unbelievable things. People will play blame games or use it to settle scores. 
uh, all sorts of unbelievable things. And I wonder if you would just comment on that, how it plays into pre-existing family dynamics. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, well, there's certainly the guilt component. I mean, every, every, just about every time we're telling someone they're a carrier and we start talking about their children's risk, mm. they, they, they start feeling guilty. Um, and, you know, we have to deal with that. Sometimes I say, well, blame your mother. She gave it to you. Uh, that always works. Um, uh, sometimes in, in, this, in this notion of, well, it's really your sister who should be tested, or your, she's got the key to this, and they're like, I hate her. She hates me. I'm not going to talk to her. And, then, you know, and sometimes we have to explain to them how valuable it is, potentially. And, but dysfunctional families uh, are abundant. <laughs> I noticed in your two examples that you did not test the men in the family. I was wondering whether you could expand on whether you recommend testing the family, all members, uh, for other diseases that are associated with BRCA2, uh, and, and how you stop doing that in a practical sense. So, um, well, we, none of the men were affected, really. By the in in those particular pedigrees, um, but uh, so the answer is this: the the uh, so BRCA2 is associated with a slight increased risk for prostate cancer, but it's somewhat even less than twofold, so it's not that great. They may be they they may be subtle to the prostate the pancreatic cancer risk. There's no established screening for the breast cancer. A, a male carrier of a breast cancer gene has an increased risk for sure, but it's less than one in ten lifetime risk, maybe close to six percent. So we often tell them. Uh, not to ignore a lump they feel, but it's kind of so, and it depends on the gene. But we do get men who get tested simply because uh, they want to know for their children, and especially if they've got many daughters, it's it's more efficient to test the one and then know if it's potentially passed on than to to individually test each each of the daughters. So we do bring it up as as an option. Uh, um, when we're counseling them, but it may not—it's often not critical to figuring out what's going on. Great. So this may be a somewhat naive question, but I'm curious about the concept of when you talk about curation. And when you talk about curation, I assume you're talking about against a reference genome. Um, and how large is that? I mean, this is not like any What is the the extent? Well, it's the it's the normal genome. It, the normal genome yeah. of what, one person? Francis Collins. No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, no, I mean the the and the, there, a lot of people have been genotyped, and the normal genome is pretty much what's there in most people. And a lot of these variants are have allele frequencies of a, a percent or less. Been genome, yeah, genotype, yeah, and their, their project has been doing it in all all around the world, different, you know, different um, populations, some of which have been fairly isolated for quite some time. Brad, thank you. That's a beautiful talk you shared with us. My my son bought me a gift of a 23andMe sequencing test. Well, I dutifully sent it in, and uh, when I got back the results, uh, the, the 
ANSYS be part of the analysis was, you know, quite interesting where they come from, how much Neanderthal, et cetera. But then when it got to the specific uh, uh, gene risk pool profile, um, the answers were not just sitting there. You, you, had, you had to uh, go through a disclaimer that made you answer the question, do you really want to know this information <laughs> before you hit uh -huh. the button to find out? And then, you know, you, you really had to you know, show up and, and make your choice before you discovered whether you were at, at a risk or something. It was actually quite spooky. So did you feel properly counseled? <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But I knew my son was waiting for me to send him the results. So yeah. Well, one of our frustrating uh, encounters was a woman um, who got it, the 23andMe and it was found that they have a BRCA mutation and she was given it by her father for a Christmas present and her father's a physician. Talk about giving a Pandora's box. Right. So, so uh, 23andMe just had a cease and desist order mm. recently placed on it. Yeah. Do, do you know where that? Where no, but that, that most recent New England Journal might might talk about where where that's sitting. I think they're still deceased. <laughs> you have patients who have the gene. Do you make any recommendations about changes in lifestyle or anything like that, or they should receive hormones, or they should take more vitamin D, or any any lifestyle recommendations? Well, it, uh, <clears throat> it depends on the on the gene. Obviously, there there are so. For breast cancer and particularly BRCA2 carriers, there's evidence that tamoxifen and uh, Avista and perhaps the wrong tasting rivers reduce the risk. There's evidence on aspirin and Lynch syndrome carriers reducing the risk of colon cancer. Um, so we try to stick to where there's real evidence. Um, we talk with everybody about stopping smoking, um, even though we may not know if it's related to the gene. Um, but that's the extent of we talk about screening and, and prevention options that for which there's published data. Well, Brad, thank you for such an informative and practical <laughs>